Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, our text this morning. We are in what I call the application section of Paul's letter to the Roman church. You will likely notice, if you're paying attention, an abrupt change in the writing style of the Apostle Paul. From the first 11 chapters, which was very meticulous, drawn out, deliberate, Paul was laying out his case of guilt of all human beings against a holy and a righteous God in his courtroom. He has made very deep and complex arguments for the doctrine of justification by faith as the only means for a person to be made right with the Holy God. But now that he's concluded that doctrinal argument, he moves into Christian living. His style of writing becomes much more abbreviated. He hits points quickly and moves to the next one. I think the best evidence of that fact is that we have seven points on our outline to cover this morning, so we better read our text, hadn't we? Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this his word. He begins by saying, let love be without hypocrisy. And at first glance, that seems like an awkward transition of thought. Paul, in verses 1 through 2 of this chapter, calls on us to be living sacrifices. That is, those that Jesus died for should commit ourselves daily to living for Him in every aspect of our life. That is, to live every day for the one who died. Last week, we saw that we serve Christ by exercising our spiritual gifts for His glory, primarily in the context of the local church. Paul talked about each member being a body part, and the body, of course, having a head which is Christ. Now, Paul wrote, and I'm sure preached quite often about this subject of love. In Galatians chapter 5, when he gives us the fruit of the Spirit, the very first one, of course, is love. Ephesians, he speaks, he tells us to speak the truth in love to one another. But probably the most famous thing Paul ever wrote about love, maybe the most famous thing anyone ever wrote about love, is 1 Corinthians 13. And like here in Romans 12, the context is just after he had written about the exercising of spiritual gifts. Do you remember? Let's uh, be reminded as I read 1 Corinthians 13. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And if there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. 
Now maybe the last time you heard those verses read was at a wedding. But he was not talking about marital love. He was talking about agape love. The kind of love that God has for us and we're to have for one another. You know that there are several Greek words that we translate to our English Bible with one word, love. And we're going to look at two of them today. Agape, which is God's kind of love. And the second is phileo, which is family kind of love. And we're to have both of those in the context of the local church. So let's walk through these verses, Romans 12, and we'll see seven points about sincere love. That is sincere love. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be sincere, in other words. Now that Greek word translated hypocrisy means under a mask. So he says, Christian love, unlike much of what is called love in our culture, should not be fake. It should not be play acting. It should be the real deal. You know that in Greek theater, they did not have electronic amplification, microphones and loudspeakers. And so uh, they wore masks and the mask had two purposes. The mask either had a frowny face or a smiley face. It would tell you what the scene was about. And then inside the mask, oftentimes there was a little megaphone. And so it projected out. And so Paul says, don't be a play actor in the church. Be real. And so how do we know real love from fake love? Well, he tells us. He gives us these identification marks of sincere and true Christian love. And number one, he says, true love hates evil. I almost titled this message today, True Love Hates, but I resisted. It's paradoxical that the first identifying mark of sincere Christian love is by what it hates. But that is the case. And what is true and sincere Christian love always hates evil. It hates sin. Now, unfortunately, there are many people in our culture who have this cartoonish notion of who Jesus is is that he went away sort of like uh, a guru, never would step on a, a fly, right? Was harmless. And yet that's not the God of the Bible. That's certainly not the Christ of the Bible. The Christ of the Bible hates sin and he rebuked it wherever he went. And you remember that Paul is writing here to Christians, those whose sins have been forgiven and who are in the process of sanctification. And the process of sanctification means that we are growing ever into the image of Christ. So if we're going to be like Christ... We must not only love what he loves, we must hate what he hates. So what does he hate? Well, he hates sin. According to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yea, seven are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utter lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers." Now, if God hates sin, and He does, why does He hate sin? Well, two primary reasons. Number one, He's holy. He is altogether sinless. And if we're to be where He is eternally, we must have our sin problem dealt with. But from a human perspective, another reason we should hate sin is because of its effect on our relationships. Sin destroys and separates, doesn't it? Think of Adam and Eve, our first parents. They had a perfect environment in which to live, and they had a great relationship. There was nothing between them. They were naked and unashamed, the Scripture says. But when sin entered the world, they were cast out of the garden, they sewed fig leaves together, and their relationship was fundamentally changed and altered for the negative. Here in Romans chapter 12, he's talking about relationships. Verse 1 and 2, our relationship with God. Verses 3 through 8, our relationship in the church, and the rest of the chapter, our relationship with lost people. So yes, 
we should hate our own sin first because it separates us from God in that relationship. And then we should hate sin in the lives of other people because it harms our relationships with Him. But it's not just rejecting sin that is called for in this verse, but also discerning and holding tightly to what is good. He says, hate what is evil, but cling to what is good. Well, there's not really a good English word for that Greek word cling other than super glue. I wrote in my margin. That's what it means. It means to adhere too tightly and not let go. So he says we're to reject all things that are sinful and cling tightly to what Albert Moeller calls the good, the true, and the beautiful. So Christian love then is not only to be sincere, it is to be discerning. Those things that are honoring to God are to be embraced and celebrated and rejoiced over. Those things which are evil and sinful are to be avoided and despised and, yes, hated. There's another indicator of sincere Christian love. Not only does it hate evil, but it honors other Christians. Verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And devoted can be translated, it may be in your copy of Scripture, kindly affectionate. And one of the scarcest virtues in our culture seems to be kindness, doesn't it? He describes here brotherly love, the family kind of love, which has natural concern for one another who's part of the family. It's the opposite of self-seeking. It's related, of course, to humility, which is a great Christian virtue. Uh, it rejoices when another person gets the honor and attention when Christ is upheld and glorified. And so uh, those are the first two. There's a third distinguishing mark of Christian love, that it works hard at serving. Look what verse 11 says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The King James Version says, not slothful in business. Now, the Bible has plenty to say, particularly in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, about the value of hard work. We live in a country which was built on the Protestant work ethic. And that word came from somewhere. It's because evangelical Christians believe the Bible, and the Bible says that we're to work hard. We are to be productive. The Bible says, go forth and multiply that means more than having children. It means being creative and using the resources God has given us here on planet Earth to, to build and to grow and to make a living for our families. But he's not talking about making a living in these verses. He's talking about our primary business as believers. And friends, our business as believers is serving the Lord, isn't it? He says, don't be lazy when it comes to exercising your spiritual gift. Now, several New Testament passages come to mind that affirm this truth. Hebrews 6, 10, for example, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love with which you have shown towards His name, in having ministered and in ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish. Another word for lazy. Don't be lazy. Don't be sluggish when it comes to serving in the church but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, Galatians 6, 9. Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. So then while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, and especially those who are the household of faith. Let's work hard. Let's not grow weary and sit down. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There's that word work, four-letter word. But a good one, the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain 
in the Lord. The Lord sees our labor. He rewards our labor. Now, we used to sing a hymn when I was a kid. It went like this. We'll work till Jesus comes, and then we'll be gathered home. Well, that is a core tenet of true Christianity. It's diligence, perseverance, hard work in the faith till Jesus comes. And the way I say it is there is a heaven and this ain't it. We're to be about our Father's business until he calls us home. And then he says we're to be fervent in spirit. I take that to mean enthusiastic about the task of serving. If there's one thing that's uh, almost intolerable, it's a person claims to be a Christian, but they have no enthusiasm about serving the Lord. Now, verse 12 gives us three more characteristics of true Christian love. In rapid-fire succession, he says, rejoicing in hope, preserving, persevering rather in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, he says, rejoices in hope. Now, hope is a very misunderstood concept today. Hope is an overused word. We say it about something that we have a wishful uh, expectation about, though there may be no evidence to it. A lot of you are hoping the Cowboys win today. I don't know how much evidence there is for that, but we can hope it. But Christian hope is not that kind of hope. Christian hope is faith in the Lord's future provision based on His past provision and promises. Uh, we talked about the Proverbs 31 woman here a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that said about her is that she rejoices in the future. She smiles at the future. And that's not saying that Proverbs 31 woman is a soothsayer. She doesn't know the future any more than any of the rest of us. She just knows whatever comes, the Lord's going to meet her needs. Well, similar way, the Lord Jesus did know what was coming there at the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what pain awaited him and he gathered after they took of the Lord's Supper that evening and asked his inner circle disciples to pray with him. They were too tired. They fell asleep. And Jesus went on further into the garden. Scripture says he prayed so intensely in his humanity, knowing the pain and suffering that was to come. You remember what he prayed? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And Jesus, thoroughly convinced that it was his Father's will for him to suffer and go to the cross, went out to the front of the gate of the garden and met the mob led by Judas Iscariot, who'd come out to arrest him and set his face and went through everything the Lord had ordained for him to go through for our benefit and his glory. The book of Hebrews says he was able to do that because of the joy that was set before him. He didn't look forward to the pain in his humanity, but he knew on the other side of that pain there was glorification, and the result of his obedience was our salvation. So even in tribulation and in trials and in suffering, we have the Lord's promises, and therefore we can rejoice, even in tribulation. Well, speaking of tribulation and persecution, the next characteristic of Christian loves is it perseveres in tribulation. Now, Jesus was not naive, and he did not want his disciples to be. He warned them time and time again about the persecution and the suffering that would come to them by virtue of their association with him. In fact, in John chapter 13, he said, A servant is not better than his master. Now, he was not making a political or sociological statement there. He was just making an observation. 
that if a master, and he was, of servants is ridiculed and maligned and even put to death, the servants can expect the same. And of course, they did. All of the inner circle of 12, save John, the, uh, John, the Apostle John, rather, uh, died a martyr's death, and he died in isolation on the Isle of Patmos. And then three chapters later in John chapter 16, verse 20, Jesus could not have been clearer, I don't think, in explaining to him the pain that would soon come to his disciples. He said this, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from me. See, Jesus is saying once again to his disciples what we remind each other here all the time. Now, this, this world's hard. It's dark. It's difficult. It's full of pain. But all pain for a true Christian is in the category of temporary. That's what it meant when it said, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and suffered the shame. And we can suffer whatever lies before us, whether it's health problems or financial problems or maybe even being cast away by our own friends and family, if we remember that it's temporary and on the other side of that is glorification. There's one more identifying mark of true, sincere Christian love and that it prays. In fact, he says a true Christian is devoted to prayer. And devoted in this case means steadfast and unmoving. It speaks of total dependence upon the Lord. Reminds us of what Paul said at a different place of Scripture, that we are to pray without ceasing. It means that we're to be constantly in a state of dependence upon the Lord, giving Him thanks for the blessing in our life, asking Him to meet our needs, interceding and intervening, for other people who need assistance. Living, in other words, in the strength that He provides. Not trusting in ourselves, but trusting, as Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, in the Lord. It's constant communication with heaven. And so Christians who have a sincere love know that that love is dependent upon God, working in and through us. But then he gets very, very practical in the next verse, 13, speaking of this sincere Christian love. Remember, it's a love that's not fake. It's not hypocritical. It doesn't wear a mask, doesn't pretend to be something that it's not. That kind of love gives. He says in verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Now, he's speaking there, first of all, of money. Paul, on a number of occasions, as recorded in the book of Acts and other places, went around to the various churches that he had planted, taking up an offering for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And so uh, we take from that, it's right and appropriate that we pool our resources to help those in need. Um, but that's the most obvious application is, is our money, and we need to be reminded of that from time to time. But I think a little more subtle application is the second part of that verse, which says, contributing to the needs of the saints, comma, practicing hospitality. One of the primary ways that we are to contribute to the needs of the saints is by practicing hospitality. That is, taking action 
when one observes a need. That's what real love is. Fake love says, oh, I see you over there in the need, brother. Be warmed and filled. Remember James, the brother of Jesus, wrote that in his epistle, James 2.15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And James is being kind of humorous there, but I think he's probably seen that in action. Someone came into the service with shabby clothing and obviously hungry and People gathered around and prayed over them, patted on the back, but they didn't give them anything to eat. Didn't give them any money. Didn't offer them a place to stay. And, and that's what Christian hospitality does. It holds the things that God places into our possession temporarily, material things, loosely. It says what mine's is, what's mine is really the Lord's, and what's the Lord's is yours. Now what's the world say? What's mine is mine, and what yours will be mine, if I have any say about it, Right? But Christian hospitality says everything is the Lord's. It holds possessions loosely and it shares with those in need, particularly with brothers and sisters in Christ. We know that it's the natural instinct that we meet our family's need first and then we help those outside of our family. Remember he's talking here about phileo, Christian love. I, I hope you talk about your church home here in terms of family. I know I do. When I go and I talk to other pastors, I talk about the First Baptist Church of Keller family. When I was a kid growing up, I wanted a big family, and I got one, <laughs> both in reality and metaphorically through the church. And I count you my brothers and sisters in Christ, and we show hospitality. Remember the verse I read earlier? Doing good to all, especially those of the household of faith. We have an obligation to all people to help meet needs when we see them. But we have an especially great obligation to help meets the needs of our church family. Well, in conclusion, let me, let me make a few points. What about you, dear friends? Do you see these seven characteristics of sincere Christian love in your own life? hope you jotted them down because we were moving very quickly. Go back and look at them today. And I know it's hard to be objective about your own progress in sanctification. So as we were talking about spiritual gifts last week, someone said, well, how do I know mine? I said, ask people who know you. Ask your spouse if they're a Christian. Ask your best Christian friends, what do you see in me? And I would say the same thing is true about these seven characteristics. Do you have them? Now, none of us have them perfectly. That's why we're in the process of sanctification. But do you desire to see them grow and strengthen in your life? Are you making daily progress? And let me just say, remember, this is not super Christianity. Paul is not holding up these seven characteristics um, as a theological frisbee thrown just out of our reach, meant to frustrate us. Not at all. He's wanting us to grasp hold of this truth and understand this is normal, everyday Christian behavior. This is how the family of faith is to operate under these seven characteristics for the glory of Christ. And if there is a lacking in your life, and I must admit, there's a lacking in my life in some of these areas, what should we do? We should ask the Lord for help, right? We should submit and say, Lord, I know that it's your will for me to exhibit these character traits of sincere love. And there's been times in my life where my love has been hypocritical. It's been unsincere. It's been fake. Will you forgive me of that? 
And if you have ex expressed any of that hypocrisy, duplicity to another Christian, maybe you need to go to them and ask their forgiveness as well and say, Lord, with your help, I want to be this kind of Christian. Do you think that's a prayer request the Lord would honor? He would. And if all the members of our church would submit to, to two things, one, to exercising and knowing your spiritual gift, and two, making sure our motive for exercising that gift is unhypocritical and sincere love. I said the Greek word for sincerity there is the word for a mask. The English word sincere is made up of two Latin words, which means without wax. You know that in the open marketplaces, they will sell their wares, and sometimes they will sell secondhand goods and thirds as if it was the best. And so a smart shopper would hold a vase or any kind of earthenware up to the sun to see if there were cracks because they would fill in those cracks with wax. And if there were wax, he would say, this is not sincere. This is not the best we could offer. And friends, the Lord deserves the best we can offer, doesn't he? He wants our love to be sincere, without wax, and unhypocritical. Not play acting, but the real thing. Let's ask for his help, will we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus who is the greatest example of sincere love one could imagine. And as we took the Lord's Supper today, we were reminded of His suffering, His death, and His uh, sacrifice on the cross. And I'm reminded of the words of Jesus when He told His disciples that uh, no greater love can anyone have than He lay down His life for His friends. That's the most sincere expression of love there could ever be. So Father, we want to have that kind of sincerity in our relationships. First of all, with You. We want to stay in constant communication with heaven through prayer. So, Father, help us where we fail in our prayer life. Father, we want to um, serve diligently. Help us not to be lazy. So easy, Father, when we're weary and worn out to let other people do what you've called us to do. Forgive us if we've done that. Help us, Father. And, Lord, we want to be absolutely sincere. We want to be welcoming and kind and have brotherly affection for all Christians wherever they are. Father, we're also to have love for the lost. And so help us always, Father, to have the name of Jesus on our lips. That's the great way we can love others is to tell them the gospel. And Father, I pray for every member of our church, but first and foremost, I pray for myself. Will you forgive me where I've failed you in any of these seven areas? Lord, I seek to do better in the year ahead, and with your help, I will. And Father, help us to encourage one another while we still have the opportunity. Help us to work hard for your kingdom. And whatever good that comes from it, we pledge to give you all the praise, honor, glory, and fame. And we ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.